0: So I was reminded yesterday what season it is. I was sitting in my basement and I was just uh, just looking uh, through some notes and all of a sudden my youngest daughter comes barreling into the room dancing and, and waving something around. And It took me a second and I realized uh, what she was holding. It was a small, flat, little piece of chocolate. It, it was day one on the advent calendar. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so I said, oh, that's right. Today's the first, isn't it? She's like, yes. And so for us, it's a tradition in our, in our family times three. We have three of those advent calendars. And, and every day now until Christmas, they're going to be opening the little box and pulling out that little piece of candy and, and counting down to the day. And it reminded me that this season is a season of anticipation, so, today I, I want to draw your attention to something that we have displayed here at the the altar area, and this is an Advent wreath. Now, now some of you are very familiar with that, and, and what's interesting about our church is we have people that come from all different types of church backgrounds. Some come from no church background, some of you came from a Catholic upbringing or or United Methodist or Presbyterian or, or Lutheran. And so many of you are very familiar with the Advent wreath and, and all of its symbolism. And if this has been a part of your Christmas tradition in years past, would you mind just raise your hand so I know who's, who's been through that? Yes, yeah, several, several in this service, several in the last service. Uh, and now some of you don't feel bad because you're like me. The Advent wreath had nothing to do with your Christmas tradition And you've never had an Advent wreath before. And and if you had known about this moment, like me, you would have Googled it. Uh, No, in all honesty, uh, I I did some research as we were preparing and praying about this season. And we decided to incorporate the Advent wreath this year because we want to to tie our hearts and our faith around the meaning of this Christmas season. And the idea of, of the Advent wreath No, it's not one that that I grew up with in my church tradition, and we never really did. Uh, The idea of the wreath is something that has been cherished for for years in in many churches, and even for centuries. Now, now let me say this about it. Uh, Having an Advent wreath and, and lighting these candles and doing all of that is not a biblical practice in the sense that it's not in scripture. So for those of you that thought, I've never had a biblical Christmas until today, I want you to know I'm just fine. It's optional. Uh, It's optional. But it's something that many churches have done, many families and individuals have done as a way of just, again, wrapping their heart around the meaning and the the significance of this season. So for those of you like me that that are unfamiliar with Christmas past of doing an Advent wreath, let me give you a little bit of the, the church tradition. The English word Advent It comes from the Latin word adventus, and it means coming. We all just say that together, coming. That's what the word advent means. So next time you sing that Christmas carol that has that word advent in it, now you know what you're talking about. It means coming, and it's an annual season of of patiently waiting, hopefully expecting. It's a season of soul searching and just like the Advent calendar, it's a season of calendar watching, counting down the days that that we observe the coming of the Lord. Now, primarily when we think about Advent and we think about the countdown, we think about the first coming of the Lord. We think about a baby being born in Bethlehem's manger. And that's a major part of this celebration. But what's special about Advent is that it's not just about his first coming. That Advent is also about the second coming. That's why when we opened the service this morning, we we sang a very familiar Christmas carol, Joy to the World. But in actuality, that's not really a Christmas carol. It's an Advent carol. Because if you think about the lyrics to that song, they really don't describe the first coming of the Lord, who was a a humble, meek and lowly shepherd, who was a, a lamb to be sacrificed. No, no, no. We sang he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So we sing that in anticipation, not of his first coming, but of his second coming. Right now we sing it prophetically, but one day we'll sing it practically. It'll be the true reality. And so here's how here's how the Advent wreath works. Every Sunday we're gonna we're gonna light a candle. Today we'll light one candle. Next Sunday we'll light two candles. And and the candles represent hope and peace. And then we have this pink candle over here that represents joy, and then we have the candle of Love And every Sunday for the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we light those candles. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to have two Christmas Eve services this year at 4.30 and at 6 o'clock. And in those services, we'll light the Christ candle, the one that is in the center. And the idea is that every time we focus in on the light that God brings, that he is our hope, that he is our He is our joy and our love that we're anticipating his coming, not just his first coming, but his second coming as well. So today, what we want to do is we want to light the hope candle and hope. is fittingly illustrated with light. Have you ever heard somebody say, when they went through a difficult situation, but they were optimistic that it was going to get better, they said, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's hope. That's saying, look, this is a bad situation, I'm not where I want to be, it's kind of getting dark in here, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. That's what hope says. Now, of course, then there's always the pessimist in the room that says, it might be a train, Right. But hope says there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And and so hope is is fittingly illustrated with light because we need light to see. And hope gives us vision of a better future. That's what hope is. Hope says, I I can see it in my mind's eye. I can believe it with my heart that it's going to be better than it is right now. And can I just say, that's what the coming of Advent is all about. That's what the coming of the Lord is all about. That it's about to get better. And can't you feel the anticipation building around this season? You know, Billy Graham said this. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to our survival in the world. Everybody needs hope. You need hope. I need hope. And we have hope today. I'm going to tell you why we have hope. First of all, we have hope because Jesus came. He came the first time. We have hope. The the prophet had it right when he said, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a marvelous light. They've seen the light, Isaiah 9 and 2 says. Why? Because Jesus came into Bethlehem's manger. When Jesus was born, the light dawn. Hope began to flicker for the first time in the hearts of God's people. It happened at his first coming. In fact, Paul the apostle wrote about it in the book of Ephesians, and we studied it earlier this year in our more series, but I want to read Ephesians chapter two, this description in verse 12 and 13 of, of what it looked like before we had hope in the world. Here's what it says. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That that was your reality before the light of hope was lit. And by the way, you can't separate those two without hope and without God. You can't be with God and without hope, and you can't be without hope and be with God. But we were without hope, and we were without God. And then look at what he says in the next verse. He says, but now, aren't you glad he didn't stop there? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to declare to you today, because Jesus came because he was born in a manger, because he lived a sinless life, because he died a substitutionary death on the cross, and because he resurrected from the grave in bodily form. You have hope today. You were without hope. You were without God. But today, because of Jesus, we have hope. Can I tell you another reason we have hope? We have hope not only because he came, but because he is coming again. And that's why we need to lean in with all of our hearts to this Advent season, because Jesus is coming Again, I I don't know if you knew this, but both the Old and the New Testament are filled with promises of the second coming of the Lord. In fact, there are 1,845 references in the Old Testament and a total of 17 Old Testament books that give prominence to the second coming of the Lord. Of the 260 chapters in the entire New Testament, There are 318 references to the second coming of the Lord. That's one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament that make reference to the second coming of the Lord. The four missing books include three of which are single chapter letters written to individuals about specific situations. The fourth one is the book of Galatians, and though it doesn't say it, it implies that Christ is coming again. For every one prophecy of the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies about his second coming. What am I telling you today? I'm telling you, if you believe in Christmas, you ought to believe that Jesus is coming again eight times more. He's coming again. And that ought to give us hope in this season of our life. We have hope because Jesus came we have hope because the same Jesus who came is coming again. But I want you to hear me loud and clear today. We also have hope because the Bible communicates that the one who came and the one who is coming is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want you to know, he's not just come and he's not coming. He is here. Amen. He's here right now. And when he ascended from that mountain and went up to heaven, he gave a promise to his disciples and to us. He said, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I want you to know the reason that we've called this series by this title is because we want to lean in with all of our hearts to Advent, not as the celebration of a king who once came or one who will one day come, but we want to celebrate this season, the God who is here. He's here today. And hope is here. The flame has been lit, not just on a candlestick, but in our hearts and in our lives and in the truth of his word. Hope is here. The prophet had it right when he said the virgin will be with child. She'll give birth to a son. She'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We called him Jesus in our worship service today, but can I tell you, he's still Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us today. I read a interesting thing a little while back from the Air Force Survival Training Course. They teach something that's called the Rule of Threes. Maybe you've heard of it before, but in a survival situation, they teach that you can last three weeks without food. You can last three days without water. You can last three hours without shelter in extreme situations. And you can last three minutes without air. You cannot last three seconds without hope. Everyone needs hope. The good news for us today is this. Hope is here. Now there's three different kinds of hope that I want to I talk to you about this morning. And, and the first one... I know we're all very familiar with it's wishful hope wishful hope is the kind of hope that we don't really put a lot of thought to we just kind of say i, I hope so i hope this happens like, like for example wishful hope would be you saying i hope we have a white christmas now you can hope that i hope that now somebody else in here might be saying i hope we don't have any more snow But listen, despite what the Hallmark Channel would tell you, you hoping that has nothing to do with whether or not we actually have a white Christmas. I'm sorry to all those Floridians and folks in Southern California. Hope all you want. It has nothing to do with the weather forecast. How many of you understand that that hope is just wishful thinking? I hope so. There's nothing that it's tied to. There's no significance to it. And and that kind of hope, it might make for great Christmas movie themes, but you can't live by it. It's a terrible hope to hold on to because it disappoints. There's a second kind of hope, though, and that is expectant hope. Now, Now, expectant hope actually is attached to reason. You have a reason for hoping in what you're hoping in. For example, maybe you're you're here and in this season, you're hoping to get a Christmas bonus. Now, if you don't have a job, that's wishful thinking, (laughs) right? But if you have a job and it's the same job you had last year and you got a Christmas bonus last year and it's been a good year, how many of you understand that you're not just hoping, you're expecting so much so that if it doesn't come, you're probably going to be disappointed. Why? Because there's expectation attached to your hope. You just believe that it's going to become a reality in your life. It's like the farmer who expects the harvest. They expect a harvest in the fall because they planted something earlier that year. Now, now if I said I'm I'm really expecting and hoping for some corn next year, that, that would just be stupid. That would be wishful thinking because I didn't plant any corn. <laughs> but for someone that planted, it makes sense that they would expect a harvest. You see, we, we do this to God all the time. We think we live by faith, but it, it's not biblical hope. It's wishful hope. Here's what I mean. That there's people that, that hope God's going to bless their finances. They hope they will, but they're like that farmer that actually never put any seed in the ground. And they just hope for a harvest. See, the Bible is actually very clear when it talks about how we put seed in the ground. Right. Let me give you a scripture. Many, many of you are familiar with this Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Now, if, if you don't know this verse, when I read it, you're probably going to want to highlight it because it's really important. Here's what it says Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So God's saying in these verses, you bring your tithe into church. See if I don't bless you. I mean, just, just see if you can be faithful in bringing the tithe into the house of God and and me not bless you. Oh, I'm going to bless you. In fact, try me, test me in this. Why? Because he's saying, look, if you will align your hope to the expectation from God's word, then then you can align your hope with the expectation of God's favor and God's blessing in return. Now, Now, God's not saying everybody that gives is going to get more money. That's not in the word. God doesn't always bless us. Financially, when we make a financial contribution. But God is saying, my favor is going to be on your life. My, my protection is going to be on your life. My power is going to be at work in your life. Why? You can live with an expectation because you've lived out the promise of this word. But people, all the time, we, we think we're living in expectant hope because we read a verse somewhere that talked about God's blessing or God's favor, but we're actually living a wishful hope. It's like this. I, I know couples that, that they want God to bless their home. They want God to bless their, their, their relationship and they want God to bless uh, their, their family, but, but they're not married. And, and God has been very clear in his word that God's blessing is on marriage. And God's word is very clear. Keep the marriage bed holy. And so if you're in the bed and you're not married, it's unholy. And God's blessing's not going to be on that relationship. But yeah, but yet we can say, well, God, I want, you to, I want you to bless. I want you to bless. And it's like we're, we're looking for a harvest and we haven't sown a seed. See, here's what we fail to realize. We fail to realize that hope requires real faith. That if we're going to have real hope, we have to have real faith. And the Bible says in the book of James that faith without works is dead. In other words, faith without accompanying action is not really faith. It might be wishful hope, but it's not real faith. But when our faith is alive and our obedience is in operation, that's different. See, when we begin to walk in obedience to the word of God and to the will of God, all of a sudden we can expect the promises of God to be fulfilled in our life. And Can I tell you, God's promises are good. His promises are a reason for you to have hope today. If you ever needed a motivation for living your life to the best of your ability, according to the word of God, it ought to be this. God's plan and his promises for you are good. Their plans to prosper you and not to harm you." Jeremiah 29:11 says, "They are to give you a hope and a future. His promises are good. There, there was one student of the Bible that he wanted to, he wanted to categorize and, and, and tally up every promise that God had made to humanity in his word. So he spent a year and a half combing through the scriptures, cover to cover. And he said, at the end of all of his study, there are 7,000. Four hundred and eighty-seven promises in the word of God for humanity. Now I'm not going to double check him on that. So how about we just go with that number? (laughs) 7,487. God's promises are are rich in his word and they are there for you. His his promises are like an apothecary shelf. Like the same way that a, a doctor would offer a medication to heal your body. God has given you promises to heal your heart. And they are yours. You can receive of them today. And you can walk in expectation with that hope. But there's a third hope I want to talk about. And before I tell you what this hope is, I want to tell you why we need it. See, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe that's been your reality a time or two. Hope that was deferred. Hope that was delayed. Hope that didn't show up when you thought it was going to show up. and, And hope that didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. Now listen, this isn't just a church thing. This isn't a Christian thing. This is a life thing. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, every one of us, every one of us have had situations in our life where we have to be honest and say, you know what? My heart was sick. Because hope was deferred. And the truth is, sometimes even good, even godly desires go unfulfilled. Now, maybe we don't say this enough in the church, but it's a reality that there are times that that our hope is deferred. Now, listen, I'm not saying that God doesn't always keep his promises. I'm not saying that God's not faithful to fulfill his word. What I am saying is that God's promises are not limited to the span of your birth to your hearse. What I'm saying is that God's promises are not limited to your lifetime. And then oftentimes we look at the promises of God through the lens of that dash between our birth date and the date of our departure. And we just expect that God's going to fulfill every promise in that time frame. But I want you to look with me in the book of Hebrews for a few moments. We're going to go to Hebrews 10 in just a moment, but first, I want you to go to chapter 11. Now, now chapter 11 of Hebrews has been affectionately called the Faith Hall of Fame. This is the who's who of hope. These are those that trusted God as much as anybody ever trusted God. And if you wanted to look at a list of the names of people that made it on the flannel graph in Sunday school, here they are. Some of you don't even know what a flannel graph is. That's okay. These are the people that trusted God beyond a shadow of doubt. And so we look at them in this category of the the faith hall of fame. But what I want you to see is that even for them, sometimes hope is deferred. Look at Hebrews 11, chapter Chapter 11, verse 39. Here's what it says. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Just let that settle in for a moment because none of them is pretty inclusive. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, I know, I know that's probably not going to get a whole, whole lot of amens. Nobody's excited to hear that reality, but could you just not because it's true? I mean, it is in the word of God. They all believed, and yet none of them received what had been promised to them. Why? I mean, that doesn't seem fair, right? Isn't that what we want to say? God, that's not fair. But look at the next verse. It says in verse 40, Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, God was saying, from their perspective, it didn't all make sense. From their perspective, all the things that had been promised to them were never fulfilled. They didn't get what they were hoping for, and yet I did it because I had a better plan. And can I just say to you today, if you've lost hope because you think God missed his opportunity, that God just didn't show up when he was supposed to show up, let me tell you, God is in the delay. God's promises are still true in your life today. And if God hasn't done it yet, and if he doesn't do it in your lifetime, there's a reason. One day you're going to gather with the multitude of these heavenly heroes, and you're going to say, God held off because he had a better plan. He had a better plan. He had a bigger picture. He had a bigger vision. And there's another side of this that we don't really talk about much in the church. But can I just remind you today that God's will is not always done in the earth. If God's will was always accomplished in the earth, then when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he would have never bothered to say, When you pray, say your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Why would we pray for God's will to be done on the earth if God's will is always done on the earth? No, God's will is always accomplished in heaven. But we're in a struggle. We're in a battle here. And God's will is not always accomplished in the earth. That's why you need a hope today that's bigger than your lifetime listen don't, don't make the, the the mistake of confusing hope for optimism see a lot of us do that we we think hope is is just optimism like it's just this endless this idea of it's going to get better like it's just, it's going to get better it's going to get better it's going to be it's going to get better that's what optimism said and and optimism is psychological hope is theological Hope doesn't just look at everything and say, it's going to get better. Hope knows sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes it's bad. And hope says, you know what? This is bad. But I still believe. In spite of it, I still believe. Hope is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they told King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. They said, our God is able to heal us, but even if he doesn't. We're still not going to bow down to you or worship your statue. Why? Because we have hope that is bigger than this lifetime. We believe God can save us. We believe God can extend our life. We believe God can do a miracle. But if he doesn't do a miracle in this life, we still have hope. Because our hope is not limited to our lifetime. Because there's something greater that we believe in. There's something greater that we long for. And can I just tell you today, if your hope stops at the point of your expectation, you need a bigger hope. Because what's going to happen to you when, when all of a sudden your expectations aren't met? Well, I know that's a rhetorical question, but you and I have seen too many times what happens. People lose hope. It's like the, it's like the mother who's with child. We, we call her an expectant mother. We say she's expecting. And for good reason. There's a baby growing on the inside of her. And so we go, well, that's, she's, she's hopeful, she's expectant. And yet many of us know through relationships or maybe even personally, you know the painful reality that not all pregnancies end in life. And sometimes what we hope for, what we really thought was gonna happen doesn't happen. And our confident expectation is crushed by an unexpected reality. And it's out of those moments that we come up with phrases like this. Don't get your hopes up. Right? We say, why do we say that to each other? We say it because we've all been there. Because we know what it's like to have your hopes crushed. And so we put up our defenses. Next time, I'll be a little bit more cautious. Next time, I'll be a little bit more apprehensive. Next time, I'm not going all in on hope. I'm just going to guard my heart. I'm going to protect my emotions. And so we say things like, don't get your hopes up. But I want to say something different to you today. I wouldn't say don't get your hopes up. What I would say to you today is get your hopes higher. Get, get them up. Get them up even higher. It's, it's not that your hopes were not high enough. It's or that they were too high. It's that they weren't high enough. Get your hopes higher. See, that's what the apostle Paul did. That's why he said this. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said, if only we have hope for this life, then we are most pitiable among men. In other words, he said, look, all the stuff that we're we're doing, all the goodness of God in our life, all the things that we're going through, all the things we're experiencing, the blessing and the hardship, the trials and the victories, If, if the hope that we have is just for this life, now mind you, this is the guy that said, for me to live is Christ. He understood his whole life was wrapped up in Jesus. And yet still, he said, if my hope dies with me, then you might as well pity me more than anybody else on the face of the earth. Why? Because he understood that his hope didn't end with his lifespan. Paul understood. He said, putting these things behind me for the joy that's set before me. I reached toward the prize, the high call, heavenward in Christ Jesus. He had a higher hope. He had a higher hope than this temporary life. Life is going to have its troubles, no doubt. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I just thought about my week before I even got into the office on Tuesday morning. I made a stop down at the emergency room to visit a young teenage girl that lives close by who had decided to get up and take a fistful of pills that morning because of pain, hopelessness. Last night, as I'm sitting on my couch, I got a phone call from my brother, Adam. We prayed together because he had just gotten word that a young Christian man who helps him in his ministry just committed suicide. And committed suicide two years to the day that my brother's son-in-law took his own life. Hopelessness. People all around us who are hopeless, who are searching. That's why we need, that's why we need this third kind of hope. Not just wishful hope, not even expectant hope. We need a confident hope. A confident hope is a certain hope. A confident hope is an eternal hope. And let me just say, the the Christians in the first century, this is the hope they had. They They didn't worship in beautiful churches like we're worshiping in. They had this hope that was beyond their circumstances and was not tied to their emotions or even their expectations. If you're there in Hebrews chapter 10, I want you to look with me at verse 32. The writer is describing what their life was like serving Jesus. <clears throat> Look at verse 32. He said, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict of suffering? You can just imagine him reading this letter like, uh, yeah, we remember. Yeah, we, we remember what that was like. We endured a great conflict. We suffered. Yeah. And then he says in the next verse, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. They're going, yep, yep, we remember that. We were there. Still bear the scars. And then he said, "In other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You ever done that? You ever been persecuted? You ever been exposed to insults because of your relationship with Jesus? Have you ever stood side by side with somebody else who was experiencing that? They had. This was their reality. Look at the next verse. He says, you suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Ever had your stuff taken from you because you love Jesus? Probably not. I know I haven't. Not in this country, but this was their reality. They were persecuted. They were insulted. They suffered in prison. People came and took their belongings from them for no other reason, but for the fact that they We're followers of Jesus. Now, why in the world would they still be following Jesus at this point? Look at the next part of that verse. Here's why. He said, because you knew. They knew something. This is why they would deal with the hardship. This is why they would deal with the imprisonment and the persecution and having their possessions stripped from them because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. See, confident hope transcends this life. It transcends this life in our current realities. And so in the next verse, look at verse 35. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly Rewarded. See, they understood something about the the promise keeping God that they were serving. They understood that God's faithfulness extends beyond your lifetime and that their hope is not limited to their finite perspective. They had a view of God that said, hey, there's a better reward and I will be richly rewarded. They knew it. So when they lost their possessions, they said, that was going to rot anyway. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where where dust and rust and vermin can't destroy it. So we got lasting possessions. You can keep that. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned. And yet they never lost their hope. And then as as he describes their life, he moves into chapter 11. And and he gives this description, verse 1 chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what what faith is. It's confidence in what we hope for. Can I just tell you today that my confident hope has nothing to do with my wants and everything to do with God's word, Your confident hope today has nothing to do with what you're sensing. It has everything to do with what God is saying. It's not based on my preferences or your preferences. It's based on his eternal promises. His word has spoken. See, hope, hope is the difference between walking into the dark or walking into the dawn. See, a person without hope just sees it getting darker. A person that has hope in in their heart recognizes that the sun must be getting ready to crest over the horizon. In fact, it's never been this dark, and I know it's darkest just before the dawn, so God must be up to something in my life. That's what hope says. That's what David understood when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, maybe the most memorized and quoted psalm. Out of all 150 of them, David said in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're with me. You're and your staff. They comfort me. How could he say that? He could say, even though I walked through the darkest valley because he had hope in his heart, because even though he was walking through the darkest valley in his heart, verse six was already reality. And verse six says, surely your goodness and your mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will, that's emphatic. I will, that's certain, that's done. It's already settled in the heavenlies. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and forever and forever. And after that, I'm going to stay there a little longer. That's what hope says. Hope discerns that we're not walking into the dark. We're walking into the dawn because hope is a light. And hope is for more than your lifetime. The Bible describes this hope that we have as an anchor. An anchor. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 6, if you turn back a few pages with me, here's what he says about the hope that we have. Verse 19, Hebrews 6, he says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm. And secure. You know, a boat needs an anchor for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons that a boat needs an anchor is because it, it keeps it from drifting too far. Now, you, a boat may drift a little bit, but, but if it's anchored, it won't go too far. And so the writer uses this metaphor and he says, we have this hope as an anchor. This hope is going to keep us, keep us from drifting too far. How many of you know it's easy to drift? In in fact, this same letter in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this. It says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews understood that, that we have this tendency. We have, we have this proclivity to, to drift away, especially when the storm's raging, especially when life is tough, especially when our expectations are not met. And so we need to drop an anchor. We need to be careful that we don't drift away. The second reason that, that anchors are important is because it gives stability in the storm. For a ship, an anchor reduces pitch and roll. It it stabilizes the vessel. And the larger the vessel is, the larger the anchor that is needed. The largest anchor in the world. I'm going to show you what it looks like. I found it online. That's a big anchor. That anchor weighs 75 tons. It's the equivalent of 35 American cars. That's a big anchor. But a big vessel needs a big anchor. Now, I I don't know about what kind of life you want to live, but Jesus said, and we preached about this last Sunday Jesus said, I've come to give you life to the fullest. I came to give you an abundant life. So, if you plan on living a big life, how many of you know you need a big anchor? And we have this hope, the Word of God says, as an anchor for our souls. It's firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Let me tell you today, the biggest anchor that you can get is the promises of God. And the writer of Hebrews begins to mix his metaphors here. And if you're not familiar with with scripture, it can get a little confusing. But let me tell you what he's doing. First of all, he's using some nautical terms. He's talking about an anchor for a vessel. But then he starts talking about the tabernacle. And he says this anchor that's out at sea, has now gone behind the curtain. And he's talking about what the the tabernacle is a metaphor of heaven. And he's saying this anchor has gone behind the curtain into the throne room of God. So imagine this, the the promises that you're anchored to, the the truth of God's word. He's saying "It, it has gone now behind the veil, behind the curtain, into the very throne room of God. Now look at the next verse. It says, it's gone there where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Let me tell you what I love about that verse, because he's still using this nautical metaphor when he calls Jesus the forerunner. The the word for forerunner was a word, it was pronounced prodromos. And what the word was used for is it was a description of a small vessel, like a tugboat, and what would happen in that region, not all of the harbors were easy to get into. In fact, at the port of Alexandria, it was very difficult to get a large vessel into the harbor, and so what they would do is they would send a prodromos, a forerunner, out into the deep, and that vessel's anchor would be attached to the forerunner, And the forerunner would then take that anchor into the harbor so that it could slowly be winched in to safety. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is our forerunner, that Jesus, he, he grabbed all the promises of God that you can't reach, but they're for you. You can't get to them, but they're yours. He went and he grabbed all those promises and the word says that in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and they are amen. And so he took our promises. He took our anchor and he went to the place you and I can't get to yet. He went beyond the veil. He ever sits at the right hand of the father to make intercession for you today. He's there now. And he's holding on to the promises that are yours. The Bible says we're slowly being winched in. We're slowly being brought in to everything that God intended and purposed for our life. We have a forerunner who's gone in before us. Now listen, if you're going to have a big anchor, it's not going to do you any good if you can't stay attached to it. And so when I saw the picture of that anchor, I had to wonder, what's the chain look like? I want to show you a picture of the chain that holds the anchor. That's a real guy. Not a Lego. Every leak of that chain weighs 500 pounds. A strong anchor does you no good if it just sinks to the bottom of the sea and you're not attached to it. And so if we're going to have a strong anchor... We have to be attached to it. And I want to tell you today, your hope has a rope. He is the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus Jesus went behind the veil, when he went beyond the curtain, when Jesus went to the place you can't yet go but are going, he took your anchor and he took your promise and he said, I'm not going to leave you here as orphans. It's actually good that I go away because if I go away, I can send the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you. He'll help you, and the Holy Spirit is our chain that keeps us tethered to the promises of God in the darkest night, the hope of heaven that pulls at us when we go, nothing feels right, and yet I still sense that I'm connected to something greater than myself. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit that's pulling us in to the promises and the presence of our almighty God. Beyond the veil, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 23, he gives them this admonition. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So what kind of hope are you professing? What are you holding? Is it wishful hope? Is it just I hope it works out hope? Is it an expectant hope? I hope so. Is it a hope that says, you know, God said it and I believe it and I'm going to live that way and I'm going to die believing it. But it better also be a confident hope. It better be a hope that says, even if God doesn't, still I will. It may be bad, but I believe a confident hope that says I'm not going to let go. I'm tethered by the Holy Spirit to every promise of God. I may see it in this lifetime. I may not. I may be going through the valley of the shadow of death, but surely goodness and mercy are following me. And I know at the end of this journey, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. And hope holds on.